Meet Emily. She's 45 and dealing with many health ailments. The most bothersome is her fatigue, brain fog, and digestive issues. She's seen many doctors and was actually diagnosed with Crohn's disease and Hashimoto's. But even with these diagnoses, she was not getting the help that she needed. She tried various medications and uppers, but none made any notable differences in her symptoms. After a ton of back and forth with many, many doctors, she took matters into her own hands and started to research other available options. She changed her diet and got a few supplements and for the first time actually started to feel a little bit better. The only issue was that she was very confused about how to proceed and that is when she decided to see me. She didn't want to spin her wheels and wanted more specific guidance and testing to really get to the root. I saw all the positive changes she had already made, and we worked on customizing that even further. However, when I was doing my evaluation and looking into all of the different areas of her body and her health, I noticed that her oral health was quite poor. She had many silver fillings, several root canals, and also complained of bad breath, even though she would brush her teeth after pretty much every meal. She also didn't seem to produce much saliva and complained of dry mouth. I knew that these things were key to her health mystery and that we needed to look at everything to solve this case. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all the health struggles Emily was dealing with, and while many of these may not seem related, everything in the body is connected. And with this connection, our oral health can often lie at the center of it. Joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is Dr. Karush Madahi. He is one of the most well-known dentists today, and for the past 33 years, he has not only created smiles, but helped improve the overall health through dentistry for many of the Hollywood's top stars. He's the author of the Anti-Aging Dentistry book, the founder of the Luminu Oral Essentials, and has been featured in numerous publications all around the world. Dr. Kirsch, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, Ina. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to have you, and I'm really excited to chat with you about all of the different connections between what goes on in our mouth and what's happening in the body. And for those of my listeners that may not be familiar, can you first tell us a little bit about why there's such a strong connection with our oral health and our overall health? Yeah, I think to simply put what is happening is that when we're talking about digestion, first of all, uh, we're talking about the oral cavity as the first entry point into the digestive system. When we're talking about uh, catching diseases or infection, we're talking a primary portal into the body is the mouth. And when we're talking about inflammation, one of the key areas of the body that could have chronic inflammation would be the mouth. So when we hear the word gingivitis, which means bleeding gums, that means that there's inflammation in the gum. When we're talking about gum disease, that means that there's chronic inflammation in the gum. 
So these types of chronic inflammation, the types of bacteria and the type of viruses that enter the mouth can ultimately find their way into the rest of the body and also the inflammatory response of the body and the inflammatory markers that are developed within the mouth it can spread out either through swallowing through the gut or also going into the bloodstream. So for your listeners, I think um, it's very important to know that the mouth is the most vascularized area. There's quite a bit of blood supply. And anytime there's any type of bleeding in the mouth, that would be the portal where the different bacteria and viruses or inflammatory markers can get into the bloodstream and spread. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is so important because I think so many people may think, oh yeah, you know, my gums bleed a little bit if I floss, what's the big deal, you know? But it's not so much about the blood coming out, it's what you're saying about the things coming in through some of those open, you know, wounds, no matter how small they may be, because obviously these infections are very, very small. They could get into these small portals. So that's really, really important. Now, when we think about this inflammation and this infection, and I know that, you know, there's obviously a lot of different things in terms of our oral care and some of the dental work that we have that can affect it. But First and foremost, if someone is wondering, you know, if they may have some of these more negative bacteria in the mouth or there might be something going on, what are some things that they can do to find out? Are there any tests that they can do? Is there anything specialized that the dentist can specifically look for? The first thing that one should look for is that when they're brushing their teeth or they're flossing their teeth and their gums, if there's any type of a bleeding, that could be a primary sign that there is either acute to chronic inflammation. So that is the first sign. Then if they feel there is, as they're eating food and they're biting on their teeth and chewing on their teeth, if there's pain upon pressure on the teeth, that could be a sign of infection underneath the root surface. Um, into the gum and into the bone. And if they are frequently experiencing bad breath, that could be, again, another sign that, that there is an underlying issues within the mouth. So these would be the primary symptoms that somebody could actually pick up at home without going to the dentist. And then once they go to the dentist, what the dentist will do by taking x-rays and also probing and checking the gum tissues around the different areas can detect if there's actual cavities, if there is actual gum disease, if there is an accumulation of a plaque and tartar that's causing chronic inflammation. All of those things then can be assessed in the dental office. Great. Yeah. So people really do need to see their dentist every six months um, to see that because that could change pretty quickly, right? From having nothing to potentially having inflammation, right? Right. So the inflammation, um, it could be as, as fast as not brushing your teeth for 24 hours. Wow. That's, that's how easily it can start. So there are people that I talk to and, and I don't know for whatever reason it's more uh, over the past three to five years. I am seeing uh, people, uh, they're just too tired, they're exhausted, they're not brushing their teeth before they go to sleep. 
And we're seeing a rise in terms of cavities just because of not brushing before they go to sleep. So brushing is, a, is an actual mechanical removal of plaque, which has all sorts of bacteria in it. So the simplest way of controlling inflammation is the removal of plaque. So when you do flossing or you do brushing, all you're trying to do is remove the plaque mechanically. Toothpastes and things, they have other benefits, but the main benefit is just brushing and flossing and removal of the plaque. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the dental work and how that can affect our health. So I think that most of my listeners know that silver fillings are not great for us. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people still have them from when we got them maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago. So can you talk a little bit about how the silver fillings can affect us negatively and also what are the best ways to remove them if someone wants to get them out of their mouth? Believe it or not, this continues to be an area of controversy. Um, the reason I say that is because Today, there's still 900,000 mercury fillings, silver fillings are being placed in the United States. The main reason is that American Dental Association has not banned silver fillings or mercury fillings, even though it is banned in many of the Western um, countries, France, Germany, uh, Switzerland, a lot of the countries, it's a banned substance, but it is not banned in the United States. I'll just had to say this because um, it is not just the people that have gotten uh, silver fillings 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. There is still pl plenty of people that are getting it today. What is the issue or what is the main difficulty that we are seeing with silver fillings? And why is there such controversy? First of all, um, mercury exists in three different forms. There's a liquid form, there's a vapor form, there's a solid form. And the vapor form is the one that we are mostly worried about. As a kid, you know, sometimes a thermometer would break and then you had the mercury. I would be playing around with the mercury, not knowing how <laughs> dangerous it is. <laughs> Me too. But that's the liquid form, right? The vapor form happens also when you have mercury fillings. As you chew or as you drink something hot, the content of the silver filling is 54% mercury. So some of this mercury leaches out in a vapor form. Why the vapor form is of most concern is because the, in the vapor form, the, it can penetrate through the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. And the half-life of mercury in the brain is 20 years. So as the mercury is getting leached out through chewing and drinking hot drinks, either it's getting absorbed in the body through different organs, be it kidney, liver, um, the tissues of the body, or be it that it goes through the blood-brain barrier and some of it gets excreted through urine, hair, nail, and everything else. So some of the... Um, issues, I think, in terms of assessing how much mercury toxicity you have was that you would test your hair, test your urine, test the blood and everything else, 
but that is not the correct indication of how much mercury there is in the body because it can be absorbed through the tissues and the organs of the body. So better ways have been um, removal of the mercury fillings. I'll get into how best to remove it and then doing sort of a challenge test to extract all of the mercury out of the organs and then measuring the amount of mercury in the blood, hair, and urine. That will give you much more of an accurate reading. In certain studies that has been done, they have studied dentists and dental assistants, and they've done some sort of a blood test or hair or urine test, and they didn't find the level of mercury to be that much more than the general population. So the conclusion was the people that are in the front line of dealing with mercury fillings, if they are not, though they don't have it, why are we worried about it? And why would it be a problem? But in certain studies, especially in European countries where the same the doctors and then the dental assistants have done challenge tests to, to extract the mercury out of the organs of the body, they saw that the levels of mercury was 17 times higher, actually, than the general population. So I wanted to discuss that a little bit so that we know exactly why you're worried about this. Then um, second part of it is that improper removal of mercury can be a lot worse than having the mercury filling in there. Because when a dentist goes in and starts to drill on a mercury fillings, the amount of vapor that's released is 100 times at a very acute time period, more than how much it would get released when you're drinking something hot or, or chewing. So it is during that drilling that you're very concerned about. So there has to be oxygen on the nose so that the person, as they're breathing the oxygen in, they're not allowing any of the mercury vapor to go through the blood-brain barrier. There has to be a lot of water. There has to be um, filtration outside, so like a vacuum that's pulling out the aerosols that are being created by the drilling. And uh, we wear gas masks ourselves, um, me and my assistant, and then a lot of protective gears, and we're isolating the tooth to make sure that... Um, the mercury that's being re removed doesn't really penetrate the body or go down anywhere. And then prior to all of this, we also have the patient rinse with activated charcoal to coat the gums and also swallow the activated charcoal to coat the stomach so that there is no absorption of the mercury into the body as well. I love what you're saying. This is so important. And, you know, this is something I talk to my patients about as well, you know, especially what you're saying with the oxygen mask and all the protection, um, you know, in the vacuum suction, um, we do binders too. I didn't think about just coating the mouth with charcoal. That's such a good idea. I usually have people take binders orally, but rinsing with it is a really, really great idea as well. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. What do you think about the amount of fillings removed at one time. You know, if you're taking all of these precautions, would it be safe to remove, let's say, three, four, five of them if someone has all at once? Or is it better to go in and do, you know, maybe one or two each time? I think the answer to this question is more personalized to the patient. And I, the one 
overriding factor uh, always that I consider is that if there is any sort of a symptoms that the patient is actually suffering from, so they, if they have chronic fatigue or they feel like things are not going well or they have medical conditions, um, we remove very little at the time. If a person is completely healthy with no complications and no symptoms of anything, then um, we remove maybe one quadrant at a time. The other big question is once you remove the silver fillings, what do you fill it with? Because I know that there's a couple of different things that dentists can use now in terms of the white fillings. Do you test people to see what they're sensitive to or how do you normally do it? Yeah, yeah. so this this is another area which is called biocompatibility dentistry. And again, this is, uh, this is not a recognized area and there's a lot of controversy around it. Um, I want to talk a, for a little bit in terms of how I actually ran into this type of a problem myself. Um, I saw patients that um, either they have fillings or they have crowns or they have veneers or they have some sort of a dental work. And then there is some sort of a chronic inflammation around the gum where that piece of filling or crown or veneer was whatever restoration that was. And no matter what we did, we couldn't control the inflammation because normally we thought the inflammation was coming because of a lack of proper oral hygiene. But what didn't make any sense is why is it so localized? Why is it around a particular tooth and not throughout the mouth? Why is the color different? Why is the bleeding pattern different than anywhere else in the mouth? So these years and years of just not understanding what was going on, until I started to hone in in terms of, okay, so if it's not really oral hygiene, what else could it be? I started to look at the pattern of these types of inflammations, and I saw always it was related to some sort of a dental restoration. Then I started to test patients. The testing that we use is a Clifford test, and um, where a blood is drawn, and sent to this lab called the Clifford Lab in Colorado Springs. And we get a list of dental products that are suitable or not suitable for the patient. And that's when I started to see the materials that were not suitable on that test were the same products or same restorations or materials that were associated with that particular inflammation. So that was how I came about biocompatibility dentistry, just really figuring out that even dental materials can create inflammation, and that inflammation is an allergic reaction to some of these materials. So going back to what do you want to replace these fillings with? Of course, fillings that would be more permanent which means the porcelain fillings are always better. And the main issue is that they're a lot more expensive and sometimes they're an overkill. So there are two materials that can be used in terms of replacing silver fillings with. If silver fillings are large, it should again be a porcelain filling, modified crown, crown, whatever that is, out of porcelain. If the fillings are not that big, it can be replaced with a resin filling, which is more of a plastic tooth-colored filling. So when we're talking about the resin tooth-colored fillings, there are only a few companies 
that actually make these resins without the bisphenol also being excreted out of them. So the worry always about the plastic fillings was the gas, bisphenol gas that was being excreted. And it is true of also plastic fillings that are being, that are tooth colored, that are being placed in the mouth. So we have identified some of these companies that make it without these gases being excreted. And we use either those types of fillings or we use porcelain fillings. So when do we actually test patients for dental materials? Again, I don't test all of my patients. Again, any patient that is showing any signs or symptoms. So when I look in their mouth and they, I look around their restorations, if there's any abnormal inflammation and that I've now come to see with allergic reactions, I test those patients. But more importantly, over the years, because I have done hundreds of these tests, I have come to see a pattern of certain materials that are more suitable. And so we are only using all of the hypoallergenic material in our office anyway. Mm. And then for the particular patients, then we test them to make sure that from the varnish to the, to the cement, to the temporary, to the actual restoration, the porcelain, all of it is something that would be compatible. That's amazing. I just have to say, I mean, the fact that, well, first of all, the tests are out there. And, you know, I think many people may know that the tests are out there, but I think more so than the fact that you can then pick, you know, not just like you said, the restoration, but the temporary, the cement. I mean, there's so many things that are involved. I think we don't think about all the different things that go into putting a filling in and making it stay in place. So that's really, really great because, you know, people who have a lot of health issues and, you know, especially those with autoimmunity, you know, there's so many different triggers for the immune system. So this is so important. This is great. Now, Dr. Adahi, what about root canals? You know, obviously root canals can be helpful in certain ways because it can save a tooth versus pulling the whole tooth, but they don't come without their risks, right? Absolutely. So again, this is another area of controversy. It is very important always to talk about the controversy and then the pros and cons of these types of things. So in certain countries, such as in Switzerland or Germany, if a person has any type of cancer, prior to getting any cancer treatment, they would have to not only remove their, all of their silver fillings, but they have to remove all of their root canal teeth. The main re reason for the root canal teeth removal is that there is this whole concept that when the nerve of a tooth is dead or a root canal is performed, there is a level of toxicity around the tooth that cannot be avoided. And that toxicity over time can impact the health of the body. I have to tell you the interesting things that I have seen. I used to travel to Italy and treat certain patients in Italy for a couple of years. And in Italy in particular, I saw that 50% of the root canals that were done they were improper root canals. These were the root canals that in U.S. I would see that they get affected very easily in a short period of time, but yet they had these root canals in their mouth and then there was no sign of infection in their mouth and they were completely healthy. And it was baffling to me. Why is incomplete root canals are okay in this uh, group of people? 
One of the things we have to always look at, as you mentioned many times in your show, is how we have a connected body, how all parts of our body is connected to each other. So when we're getting into the root canal area, and then we're looking at the expression of infection and problems, one of the things that we also have to take into consideration is that the diet. So I have seen one of the main issues that I don't, didn't see in Italy, most the food there is organic, the lack of use of pesticides and all sorts of things. It doesn't seem to impact their body quite the same way as what we have in, in the U.S. So when the diet, there's issues in the diet, when there is issues in the water already, your body will be under stress. And that stress what it does, it, it expresses in itself in many different ways, especially with root canal teeth. Having said that, again, getting root canals done by a regular dentist is very, very different than getting root canals done by a, by a specialist. I want to also highlight this because the way that the root canal tooth is isolated by a specialist, making sure none of the saliva, none of the bacteria that's inside the mouth is getting exposed to the inside of the tooth has a great impact on the toxicity around the root canal teeth as well. So there's been many studies that seen that the rate of failure of root canals with general dentists is much, much higher, maybe three, four times higher than the ones that are done by a specialist. So I don't want to just give you a black and white answer, but I would tell you there are certain cases where there is immunity issues, when there are health issues, that the root canal is, I'm not telling the patient to actually do the root canal because of those, and I'm telling them to it's best to have that tooth removed. In cases where uh, taking the tooth out could present other types of problems and other types of issues. I make sure that it is treated by a root canal specialist with biocompatible materials that have been tested for that patient. And in general, we have to know that when you have root canal teeth, there, are always ex there is always a chance of reinfection or toxicity around those teeth. All of these pieces of information, I think, is very important to know and to look at and not try to treat everybody the same way. Yeah, well, that individuality is so important. It's good to know, though, that you can have a root canal in your mouth and still, you know, maybe be okay if your inflammation is low and your diet is good and some of the things that you've noted in your patients in Italy, you know, because I think sometimes, you know, people kind of have this doom and gloom. Oh my gosh, I have a root canal. That's it. It's the end of the world. And, you know, we know obviously it could present problems like you're mentioning, but it doesn't mean always it's the end of the world. You just want to have it evaluated. Now, do you find that if the root canal tooth has a crown on it, does it help to prevent a potential reinfection or you know problems with it down the line? Yeah. So I think that, that that's a very good question again. So before, um, they didn't really understand where was the infection coming from. 
So what has been found is that leaky crowns, not having a crown, not having a proper filling or things that is really protecting the tooth and especially the root canal area from the top where the bacteria inside your mouth have any type of a leakage inside the tooth is one of the factors that's contributing to the infection. The second uh, contributory factor is that the root canal, either the nerve was not completely cleaned or was not filled all the way to the top, so there's no real seal on the root. So there is a component of the what was done within the root and then the component of exposure of constant bacteria from the um, inside your mouth inside to, to the inside of the tooth because of a lack of proper restoration or a leaky restoration or not having a crown or a bad crown. Now, in terms of sealing the root and you know properly disinfecting the root before it's sealed, do you feel like it's possible to completely disinfect it? This is, again, an area of very intense interest for me. What I have seen is that there are certain root canal specialists that they don't start and finish the root canal right away. What they do is they leave a paste called calcium hydroxide in the root area for about a week before they remove it and then they do the root canal. Um, with those people, I have seen much less occurrences of infection. So there is, there could be certain ways that things can be done to sterilize inside of the root better than others. That's why, again, use of specialists that understand these types of concepts becomes very handy. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I actually have a root canal. Well, I had two root canals and one got infected a long time ago when I was younger and it was in a back tooth and it was pretty bad. And that tooth had a very, very, very large filling. And so I opted just to have the whole thing removed. I mean, we're going back probably 20 years. And then I had another root canal in one of my front teeth, um, which obviously removal would not (laughs) be something that um, I would want. And what was interesting with that is I had the root canal done by, I believe, a regular dentist. And there was no crown on it. And then I started seeing another biological dentist and she noticed there was a shadow in the scan. And she was like, I think there's something going on. And obviously that tooth is dead. I couldn't feel anything, but she noticed there was something going on. And so she did exactly what you mentioned. Um, She put something in, um, left it in for a week, you know, and then went back in and then we checked and, you know, that shadow on the skin was gone. But she also convinced me I didn't want to have a crown because I'm like, I like this tooth. I don't want to drill down the tooth. And she really explained kind of what you're saying as well, that you absolutely have to because otherwise it's going to get reinfected. So I'm uh, kind of keeping my fingers crossed that that tooth is going to be okay for a little while. Now, do you feel like scans are one of the best ways to see if there's an underlying infection in a root canal, or is there any other way that we could tell? Yep. So the use of scans in dentistry, in particular in the past 10 years, has changed completely. I would tell you that um, 90% of the time, maybe even higher, 95% of the time, you're able to detect some sort of an infection or problem in a tooth or a root canal tooth on a, with a regular x-ray. Where I would uh, tell the patient to take a scan, and the specialist that I also work with, the root canal specialist, they also have scans, is where there is mysterious pain or mysterious type of sensitivity, 
then we go to the scan. The main reason for it is that the amount of radiation that one gets through a scan is much, much higher than a regular digital X-ray. So we don't try to always go to the scan as a first option, but in certain cases, it's the only option to really truly find out if there's infection or if there's a crack in the tooth. A lot of the time, the recurring infection could also be due to a crack that is very, very difficult to pick up on an x-ray. I see. And when you're talking about the scan, are you talking about a cone scan or what is the name of the scan? Yeah, the cone beam scan. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. The cone beam, the reason for the cone beam, again, the amount of radiation of a cone beam is much, much less than a regular scan. So and that's why it has become so much more popular, just like the digital x-rays are 90% less radiation and than a regular traditional x-rays, cone beams also and much less radiation than a regular scan. Okay. And you feel like that can show some of these underlying things that... Yeah. Okay. The, the reason for it is that the scans are done in a 3D. So when you take an x-ray, it's only two-dimensional. And the three-dimensionality, you can go in and out of the bone through the digital scans, uh, cone beam, and really see exactly certain areas that would be hidden due to the superimposition of other roots or other structures. Now, another topic that is often talked about, especially in the functional medicine circles, is cavitations. And I don't think that a lot of people are as familiar with it, though. Can you tell us a little bit about what those are, how they can form, and how could they potentially be an issue? Yeah. So, you know, the thing is that uh, sometimes there is a rush to take out teeth that are either infected or they have root canals. And we forget that each of these procedures has its own issues. So in terms of when you remove a tooth, around the root of the tooth, there is a tissue called the periodontal ligament. The periodontal ligament is protecting um, the bone and the tooth against extreme types of pressure. It's like a shock absorber around the root of the tooth. Yet when you take the tooth out, this tissue is, is there. If the tissue is not completely removed from all surfaces of the bone, that tissue in itself can create infections and cavitational problems within the bone. Now the bone has healed. Within the bone, you have infections. So just removing the tooth doesn't mean that the problem is going to be over. Again, there has to be proper procedures in terms of making sure that all of this tissue is removed. This extractions that are being done in uh, that I I don't do any extractions myself. Again, I use specialists either oral surgeons or gum surgeons that are very, very familiar with once an extraction is done to really scrape all of that tissue off of the um, surfaces of the bone and making sure that none none is left behind. Otherwise, you would have to re-enter and try to clean up these areas, which is a lot more difficult and more destructive. And what about in terms of the use of anesthetic, using something with epinephrine versus one without, does that have any result at all on you know what can happen in terms of the healing when the tooth is pulled? In terms of healing, no. Um, I want to first explain why is there epinephrine in anesthetics. Epinephrine's use in anesthetics is mainly for one reason, and that's to prolong the effect of the anesthetic. 
So anesthetics that do not have any epinephrine, they don't last very long. So when you are particularly dealing with an extraction, um, if you're using an anesthetic that doesn't have epinephrine, it it would be very difficult to control the pain, have more uh, detrimental effects in terms of psychologically and also just the um, trauma to the area due to the amount of pain that the person is experiencing. Mm-hmm. So in, in cases of where people have high blood pressure, one of the things that we always do is that they, we get clearance to make sure that the um, blood pressure is under control because use of epinephrine increases the uh, blood pressure and also increases heart rate. So again, we are very much worried about people with medical conditions. And then in those cases, we would have to resort to more of a non-epinephrine type of anesthetics, but more frequent anesthetics. And and also there are people, they show some sort of an allergic reaction to epinephrine as well. And the allergic reaction is uh, sometimes sort of a fatigue that they feel. And, um, and then some people, they go into sort of a hyperventilation and uh, feeling like they cannot breathe, things like that. Um, normally, it lasts 15 minutes, but it could be quite intense on some people. Certain, most people feel a little bit of it, but there are, I have seen patients that they have quite a bit of an intense reaction. Yeah, I have too. And that's definitely a good point. You know, the reason I was asking about epinephrine was just from the a point that it does constrict blood vessels. So there's typically less bleeding, which I know is very convenient when you're pulling teeth. But I didn't know your thoughts on just having bleeding to push out any potential underlying infection and like forming the clot. I didn't know if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, so the epinephrine is very short acting. It should uh, not interfere with any of those type of things. The things that dentists and oral surgeons are worried about is continuous bleeding and not forming the blood clot. And then just constantly there is bleeding and then it becomes another type of a problem. The epinephrine is mainly used uh, just a little bit to control the bleeding because it's very short acting at the end of the day and also to just control the pain it will not have any effect in any other way. And so if someone does everything correctly, they should hopefully not have any of these infections or not have any of these cavitations that form. But is it possible if someone maybe had their wisdom teeth removed or their teeth removed and perhaps they didn't go to a specialist and then they have an underlying infection or a cavitation, how can they find it and do they have any options? What's available for them at that point? What I would recommend is, again, scans are very helpful because they show you these dead areas within the bone and where the infected areas are and where the oral surgeons can get in there and clean up those areas. So there's definitely something can be done about it. It's just a lot more invasive than if it was handled the right way from the beginning. And, and mo- it's interesting because most people, even with the incorrect handling, they don't get any of these things. There's a certain, it's a small part of the population, but because that up small part of the population, we are implementing a sort of systems that will 
even get rid of that small type of a population so that they don't have any problems. That's great. That's really great. And for everyone listening, you know, if you've had a tooth removed and perhaps it wasn't by a specialist, it doesn't mean we need to, you know, get really nervous. It doesn't mean like Dr. Mbahi saying that something is wrong. It is a small percentage. However, if you are having issues with autoimmunity or chronic fatigue or some other underlying chronic issues, getting a scan to check for those is always very helpful. Dr. Madahi, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. What a wealth of information. Thank you so much for telling us all of the information about fillings and root canals and cavitations and all of these things that I think you know, not everyone knows about. So it's such an enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you. And also, I want to thank you for uh, creating a platform and a forum for people to be educated and getting the word out and making people understand that to understand the differences and why is it important to not just treat one thing and look at the body as a whole. So I really appreciate all that you have done. As you just heard, what happens in our mouth is directly correlated to the rest of our bodies. I'll tell you more about what we did for Emily in just a second. But first, I wanted to thank Dr. Madahi for being here and all of this valuable information. We actually had quite a lengthy discussion. And next week, we're going to have a continuation where we actually talk about the oral microbiome, how your mouth actually affects your digestion, and different types of oral care alternatives that you can use. I bet that you'll be surprised about some of the things that you're using that could potentially be an issue. And we also talk about ways that toothbrushes and brushing can damage your mouth and teeth. So stay tuned for all of that next week. I will have all of this information along with the resources we discussed and Dr. Madahi's contact information in the show notes. Just go to healthmysterysoft.com. It's all under episode 70, or you could just scroll down in your podcast app. And for Emily... I first recommended that she see a biological dentist because we needed to get some good scans to check for infections, cavitations, and really consider removing the silver fillings. While this is not an easy process, after all of Emily's scans came back, there was lots of work to do. While she worked closely with the dentist to address all of those issues, I supported her detox pathways with glutathione and binders to make sure that she was not absorbing any of the toxins that were being removed from her mouth. When removing silver fillings and changing out other dental work, it's really important to not rush. This process takes time and we want to make sure that the body's able to handle it. Just having all of your fillings removed at the same time, especially if you're not doing any type of detox support before or after, can be a huge mistake. You can get much more exposure and it can make you feel much worse. Emily actually had 10 fillings that needed to be changed and one of her root canals was infected. So she opted to have that tooth pulled and got a bridge in its place. She did this over three months to give her body time to detox and adjust. In that time, she never had any detox reactions and actually noticed an improvement in her energy and brain fog when all the dental work was done. While doing this, we worked on her gut, cleansing out several infections that we found in her stool test with antimicrobial herbs. Then we healed her gut and replaced the good bacteria with probiotics and enterovite. During this time, I also had Emily change her oral hygiene products so we can maintain the microbiome in her gut and her mouth at the same time, we also then worked on better chewing and saliva production. Six months after we started, her energy was back to normal, 
brain fog was gone and her digestive issues were improved by 75%. We're continuing to work on balancing her gut and address a few remaining infections to get her to that 100%. The other really cool thing was that her Hashimoto's antibodies dropped by 300 points in these six months. We were both thrilled about all of the positive changes so far. If Emily sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And be sure you're subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. When it comes to your health issues, please, please don't give up. I know it could be frustrating. I know it could be really hard. But the thing is, there's almost always something that you can do. The answers really are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.